0: Lilithan watched impassively as the doomed human vessel continued valiantly, if futilely, to fight on. It had been stripped of its shields, its main drive had been crippled by a torpedo hit, and it could neither move nor manoeuvre. Its hull was punctured in more than a dozen places, and its internal atmosphere was bleeding out into space. And yet, the human barbarians within refused to yield to the inevitable. The slender dart shapes of her life mate Corneus's eagle formation glided in for another and surely final bombing strike on the vessel and even as Lilithan watched the images projected on the delicate bone membrane of the pigskin she saw the remaining working turret defences on the enemy vessel's hull open fire at the oncoming bomber craft. She smiled in appreciation as she watched the Eagles dance through the hail of fire, leaving the confounded human gunners, pointlessly chasing the ghostly after-images thrown out by their target's hollow-field generator defences. "'Your orders, Craft Mistress,' echoed Corneus's mind voice over the wraith device amplified communication link. "'Do you require any of the Monkai animals as captives?' Even over the wraithbone Comlink, which often missed subtle inflections of meaning and cadence, the knowing humour in his mind voiced tone was clear. Mael Denan, replied Lilithan, using the shared warrior cant dialect of their now vanquished craft world. Danan, the word for death, but used only in terms of the culling of animals and of a lesser creatures. Mael Denan total and merciless extermination. The Eagle Bombers bore mercilessly on, skipping effortlessly past the storm of lasbeam fire, spinning a dizzying path through a wall of crude Monkai explosive projectile munitions. They bore relentlessly down on the target. In time's path, Lilithan had taken on the aspect warrior path of Amon Harakt, of Eagle Pilot. That part of her, which would always be of that aspect, could well remember the surge of exultant pleasure which must now be filling the minds of the bomber pilots as they heard the overexcited, screaming crescendo of their craft's infinity circuits and saw the bulky shape of their doomed target looming ever larger through the crystal glass canopies of their cockpits. She watched the last few moments on the pigskin screen, marvelling at the skill and artistry of the bomber pilots. She had seen this final killing stroke performed a thousand times, had performed it herself a thousand times more, But still, the pleasure never left her. The eagles bore on, until the pitted and battle-scarred hull of their target must have filled their entire universe. And then, at the last possible moment, and with only scant metres to spare, they broke formation and peeled away, their navigator companions simultaneously giving the mind-thought order to their craft's infinity-circuit systems, A brood of missile slivers launched away from each craft, piercing the target vessel's hull in a space of time immeasurable by the crude animal minds of the vessel's occupants. Another infinitesimal moment later, and the missile's sonic charge warheads detonated deep within the target, unleashing a carefully orchestrated symphony of destruction. The human vessel did not so much explode as shatter, transformed in an instant, into a rapidly expanding sphere of twisted metal and fragmented ruin. The Eldar vessel's pack of killers raced ahead of the wreckage wave, the squadron's infinity circuit comm channels filled with a hot, excited mishmash of victory shout-thoughts and bravado chatter. "'Swift victory, sure death,' thought, talked Lilithon, in the proper rite of celebration, using her eclipse class cruiser's superior infinity circuits to reach out into the minds of the over-excited aspect warrior pilots and install a necessary sense of calm and authority, return home to receive your craft world's blessing one by one, the pilots swiftly responded to the order but she maintained her vigil at the pigskin screen until she was certain that all the bomber craft were returning to their launch bays. As a one-time Aspect Warrior pilot, she well knew the dangerous ferment, which often seized the minds of those who chose the Aspect Warrior path. We are slaves to our emotions, she thought. This weakness, this inability to control our animal selves, almost destroyed us once. We must not succumb to this Monkai aspect within ourselves again. We must keep in check our baser nature if we are ever to survive. A flickering glance across the other pick screens confirmed that elsewhere the battle was likewise going in their favour. Four Monkai transports lay crippled and helpless, offering themselves up as easy victims to any of the other eagle formations still at loose across the battle zone. Three more transports and one escort craft had been reduced to burned-out hulks, while what remained of the human convoy was making a desperate limping run for the warp jump point on the fringes of the system, still impossibly far distant. Given their present speed and predicament, fast-attack Eldar vessels, Hemlock and Nightshade destroyers harried them all the way and Lilithan saw the last surviving human escort's turn, outmanoeuvred and outgunned, to face their pursuers in a desperate and doubtlessly ill-fated attempt to buy time for the rest of the convoy to reach the safety of the warp jump point. The Eldar ships accelerated at speed towards the enemy warships, their commanders no doubt revelling in the promise of such easy kills. They fight bravely, the humans, offered Alilil, second in command of the Vor "'watching the denouement of the battle as it was projected real-time "'upon the auger-chamber's pigskin screens. "'We must give them that much, if nothing else.' "'We give them nothing,' replied Lilithon, "'making no attempt to disguise the contempt in her voice, "'shading the meaning of her words with the inflection reserved "'for an enemy considered beneath contempt. "'They are enemies. "'It is dangerous not to accord your enemies at least some measure of respect.' ventured Elilil. They are animals. They have no souls, and so they are incapable of possessing the virtues of bravery or nobility of spirit, she replied. And yet they continue to fight when there is no hope of victory, as they do now. Even the lowliest animal knows when to flee, or if cornered, when to offer its throat in surrender to its conqueror. Lilithan was not to be distracted by her second-in-command's philosophical musings. They fight, because they know no other way, because their animal natures compel them to do so. If they have any courage, then it is merely the courage of a savage beast, that manner of mindless savagery which may drive an animal to gnaw at its own trap-imprisoned limbs. We have more important matters to attend to, she added in mind-speech. Let the issue be at an end. Wisdom commands, genuflected Elilil, the unmistakable body language of his stance and carefully subservient gesture making clear his unspoken opposition to his craft-mistress's opinion. He disagrees, but our ways permit him to do so, thought Lilithan. That is why our ways are superior to the ways of the Monkai, and their mindless subjugation to the will of their corpse-god. care. "'Waterbringer. That is what his role means in our language. "'He is older and more cautious than I. "'His task is to bring water to quench the fires of my fury "'when they threaten to become too uncontrollable. "'He brings balance to my command, "'just as our race's task is to bring balance to the universe. "'That is why all that we are and all that we have been "'cannot be allowed to be extinguished without a struggle.' "'Light flared on one of the pigskin screens as another ship exploded.' calling her attention back to the here and now. She saw one of the human vessels, so ugly, she thought to herself, so bulky and graceless, so unlike the graceful, slender-lined shapes of her ships, slowly breaking up as it was rent apart by a series of internal explosions, one entire side of its hull stripped away by the deadly, nimble touch of a pulse lance. The Eldar, are on the command bridge of the Vol. Paused for a few seconds in their tasks to watch the last few moments of the human ship's death throes. One of their troop transports, judged Elilil. A bad loss for them, several thousand warriors less to battle the Servants of the Abomination. Or several thousand warriors less to attack and exterminate us, countered Lilithan, Count yourself fortunate, Elilil. You still have a craft world home while I saw mine destroyed by the Monkai savages and heard the mind screams of our world's dreaming ones as their spirit stones were ripped out of their living wraithbone. Eliliel said nothing. All across the command deck the eyes of many other Eldar were upon her, and even the gentle, calming mind-speak whisper of the wraithbone all around them seemed to falter and quiet. To those of her race, a craft world was a sacred, living thing. The sanctuary, which nurtured and protected them in the cold gulfs between the stars, and to speak of the death of one of these ancient and impossibly precious refuges, was to bring fear and horror in the minds of every Eldar listening. The Monkai and their corpse god oppose the great abomination, as do we, she continued, studying the patterns of the field of battle and the tactical picked-skin screen. But they are also the abomination's greatest source of power, "'They are weak and stupid, and their god is old and failing, their empire is doomed, "'but in its death-throes it lashes out blindly at all around them, including us. "'They understand so little, and all which they do not understand they condemn and seek to destroy. "'That is why we cannot depend on them to hold the line against the abomination, "'and that is why we must prevent them from building their strength to strike at us.' A little said nothing.' but made the sixth variation of the ninth gesture of contrition. Sorrow expressed at the touching upon another's grief. Lilithin made the corresponding gesture of forgiveness. Her story was well known among the Eldar of Elilil's craftworld. Her own craftworld destroyed, she and the other survivors of the unwarranted attack on Bel Shaman fled into the labyrinth of the webway, taking refuge amongst the craftworlds of their brethren Eldar. A refugee even amongst a race of refugees, the fires of vengeance burned hot and fierce within the proud young warship captain, as the ships of the human transport convoy had just found out to their cost. The human's war had spread out all across the Gothic sector, even into those regions which they had normally left well alone in centuries past. Regions marked as uncharted or uninhabited wilderness space on their crude star charts, but which every vessel's captain knew all too well to be inhabited by races other than theirs. The humans had lost many ships over the millennia in attempts to probe into these regions. And for many years now, there had existed an unspoken concordat within the humans' naval forces that such areas would be left well alone, and the races within them allowed to remain unchallenged. Now, though, the urgent requirements of war brought the humans into these dark regions – They came in search of convoy routes which would allow them to evade the enemy's prowling wolfpack fleets or seeking new resource planets to provide the raw materials for the manufacture of their crude but often highly effective armaments. This system was part of one such region. In itself it was insignificant and unremarkable, a dying dwarf star circled by four dead planets. But drifting far distant through the outer fringes of the system was the craft world. "'An Eolsus, birthplace of Elilil, and the other Eldar aboard the Volun shore, "'and the adopted home of Lilithon herself. "'The system and the barren reaches of interstellar space around it was sacrosanct, "'while the craft world was even remotely nearby. "'And it would be over a century and a half, "'yet uh, before Anne Eolsus's slow, millennia-long course "'would carry it beyond the furthest borders of the system,' and so the Eldar of Anne Ielsis had reacted with brutal and immediate force to the humans' incursion into the region. This was the third such convoy which Lilithan's Reaver fleet had ravaged, and that aspect of her which she had surrendered to the warrior calling exulted in the carnage she and the vessels under her command had wreaked amongst the human trespassers. She had stood on this deck and watched in satisfaction as star-bright beams of pulsar lance energy effortlessly laid open the thickly armoured hulls of the human vessels, as flights of Eldar torpedoes, mind fast and almost impossible to detect, ruthlessly and effectively hunted down and destroyed the slow and ponderous enemy ships, as squadrons of Dark Star fighters and Eagle bombers danced their deadly ballet around their targets, filling the darkness of space with the lights of exploding enemy craft, She had seen all this, and yet it was not enough. Still, the humans came. They do not understand that this region of space is forbidden to them, she thought, feeling the old, familiar fury of the warrior aspect well up within her. And so the more vessels they attempt to send into these reaches, the more we will enforce that understanding upon them. With difficulty, she tamed such wild thoughts, knowing that the command deck of a flagship cruiser was no place to allow full vent to the most extreme emotions of her aspect warrior mind. She looked again at the scenes on the tactical pigskins, speaking aloud orders to the crew members around her. "Mainsail thirty degrees to sunward. increase speed by two urs, and set in pursuit course following the main body of enemy vessels. Escort vessels, Matabar's shield and Lament of Elshore will accompany us. The remaining vessels will seek out and destroy the enemy stragglers which have already been abandoned in the enemy's escape towards their precious jump point. Delicate Eldar fingers flickered in complex patterns over crystal and wraithbone control settings. There came the quiet whispering of thought-talker communications officers, as her orders were disseminated to the rest of the Reaver Force. There was a palpable surge of energy within the bone structure of the vol Show, and all within the vessel felt something of the surge in their own minds, a rising tide of bloody-edged excitement at the prospect of the slaughter to come. Lilithan felt it, and welcomed it, but at the same time, her superior aspect warrior senses had detected a note of faint discord within the mood of the moment. She mind-reached out in search of the puzzle and found it, a vague, forbidding dissonance emanating from far away, but growing nearer and stronger even as she observed it. The ship's rafebone spirit sensed it too and picked up on it, broadcasting it to the mind of every Eldar aboard the cruiser. The ship's spirit song changed as systems powered down, apparently of their own volition, and scant seconds later, the other ships in the Reaver fleet did likewise, as their own vessel minds responded to the silent call of the command ship. Eldar eyes looked at Lilithan in question, everyone on the command deck radiating the same range of confused emotions, puzzlement and surprise, mixed with a vague and angry accusation as they suddenly found themselves denied the prize that had been promised to them. "'She looked at the ritual place where the thought-talkers stood, "'angrily gesturing at them in curt command. "'Explain, now.' "'A command from Anna Ailsa's craft mistress said Namhin, "'the oldest and most experienced of the quartet. "'We are to break off and return immediately to the craft world.' "'Now?' asked Lilithan, looking towards the pigskin, "'showing the image of the remaining escaping Monkai vessels.' "'Ion Shah has spoken,' bared the thought-talker. "'It summons, carries the word and name of Lord Farseer Caradriel himself.' Lilithurn and Alilil exchanged glances and mind-thoughts, the same reaction passing between them. Caradriel, a Farseer so old and venerable that he had seen many Farseer brethren pass along the journey from birth to Spiritstone while he still walked the witch-path. "'What could have happened?' to have roused him from his reveries inside the Dome of Crystal Sears. "'Wisdom commands,' said Lilithan, giving the required obedient reply and indicating to her crew that they were to comply immediately with the Summon's order from the Craftworld. A few seconds later, and the Volun Show was swinging about to Sunward, abandoning the chase and setting its prow towards the system's hidden webway portal, located at a point in space between the orbits of the third and fourth planets. Kepa Nishak, she cursed to herself, in the coarsest possible dialect of Bel Shaman Battlecant, taking a last look at the rearward-view pigskins and the image projected there of the human vessels as they escaped to undeserved safety. The Monkai aboard them had eluded her she knew, but the next of their species to cross her path would not. In the name of the murdered kin of Bel Shaman, the next time she would kill five ten, a hundred times the number of humans who had escaped her raft today. As always, Caradriel's dreaming mind took pleasure in the smallest of things. At the moment, his universe centred on the tiny, jewel-carapaced insect drones which drifted lazily through the humid, misty air of the dome chamber, looking like small, drifting star points of light in the dim ambience of the place the tiny mechanoid creatures were a marvel of technological achievement nano devices the secrets of which had taken the eldar thousands of years to attain and far in advance of anything the galaxy's younger and less refined races could yet manufacture their purpose was to tend and clean the crystalline rafebone material of the spirit trees which filled the dome all around the resting farce Caradriel could, and on at least one occasion actually had, spent days studying the patterns of the creatures as they drifted through the chamber in their never-ending work, seeing in their behaviour an endless and silently joyful symphony of movement and purpose. How many of them are there, he wondered. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands even. And yet each year there seemed to be a few less, a fact which he doubted anyone else even noticed or cared about. We are a dying race, he reminded himself, without even the ability to repair or replace these precious little things, studying the patterns and facts of the smallest of things, for that is where the greatest truths are to be found. He sighed and began to stir himself, seeing the patterns of several possible near-futures shift and coalesce into one clear moment soon to come. Someone was coming, and soon his rest would be necessarily disturbed. He had lived a long life, even by the standards of his long-lived kind, a long and arduous life, limbs and joints once supple and strong, ached in the humid heat of the dome chamber. Eyes, which were once a deep golden hue, had faded to a milky amber, while hair that was once raven-black was now shocked with bright silver. The intricately worked, wraith-bone staff was now more than just an affectation of rank, and he leaned on it heavily as he began to climb awkwardly to his feet. He remembered days, more than one and a half millennia ago, when, as a fleet-limbed young warrior amongst the ranks of his Craftworld's guardian militia, he had fought and triumphed in the great Dithyandly competitions of martial strength, besting the champion guardians of free-over craft worlds, the mighty Ulthwi amongst them. He had considered then setting his life's course along the path of the warrior, but the fate lines had led him to his true calling among the witch-path. He sighed again, casting his gaze across the thousands of wraith trees which filled the wide expanse of this place, the crystal dome of seers. One day, not too distant now, his spirit would take its place here amongst his brethren, and his journey along that long and often shadow-shrouded path would finally be at an end. It was not a thought which daunted or alarmed him, and he had already left instructions as to where he wished his spirit stone to be planted, in the rich psychoplastic loom, so that it might take roots and form the seed of another crystal tree, releasing its spirit to join those of the others in the craft world's infinity circuit mind. He looked at the spot he had long ago picked out, between the spirit trees of Aglithia, his first soulmate, killed twelve hundred years ago, defending an exodite world from an orc attack, and that of his old mentor, Dodona, who had travelled this same path nearly a thousand years previously. He often communed with their soul spirits here inside the dome, and those of other friends, rivals and lovers, but it would be good to finally be at one with them all. But not yet, he reminded himself, not while there was still one last vital task to perform. He heard the silent psychic murmur pass through the spirit mind of the Crystalline Forest, and turned to see the free figures which his far-seer prescient sense had told him minutes ago would soon be here. They stood silent and reverent in a clearing amongst the trees, awaiting his attention. Deradios, Craftworld and master-warrior and keeper of the shrine of Kaela Mencha Khan, and two of his aspect-warrior lieutenants, Sheron of the Dark Reaper aspect and Freyra of the Striking Scorpion aspect, Freyra shared kinship with Caradril, being the granddaughter of a brother dead these last 800 years, and so there was an extra gesture of familial respect in the bow she offered to the Farseer. Caradril returned the warrior's greetings, noting how oddly ill at ease Doradios seemed, here in the craft world's most precious and sacred place, then realising it was because the Aspect Lord was without his warrior's mask and weaponry, "'removing them as a mark of necessary respect before entering the dome, "'the one place in the craft world where weapons of any kind were forbidden. "'Without his fierce Aspect Warrior's mask to hide them from view,' Doradios's features were sharp and keenly intelligent, although his discomfort as his surroundings was betrayed by eyes which constantly searched for threats which could not exist in this of all places, and by hands which protectively sought out the empty places on his belt harness where sword and shuriken pistol would normally have hung. He is far upon the warrior path, Caradriel thought, perhaps too far to turn back now. Soon, in only a few decades, perhaps, he will turn his back on all else which he could have been, and take on the title of Exarch. It had been many centuries since Anne Eulsus had witnessed the nomination of one of its own to the rank of Exarch, an elder who had become trapped in one aspect role, dedicating their existence solely to the pursuit of war. Although Caradril could remember when there had always been at least one such terrifying and awe-inspiring figure aboard the craft world. "'We are a dying race,' he told himself again. "'We only have to open our eyes to see the evidence all around us.' "'The summons has been received and acknowledged,' the Farseer asked, knowing what the answer must be. "'She is coming,' replied the Aspect Lord. "'The Val Unsho and the other craft under her command are returning to An Iosus. "'You do not.' "'Approve of the choice of Lilithon for this task?' "'The inflection Cradjil used made his words less of a question and more of the statement. "'The Aspect Lord considered the matter for a brief moment before giving his answer. "'Her soul is not in harmony. "'She is too full of anger and a first for vengeance to be trusted with the task you have commanded. "'Anger?' A first for vengeance. Strange to hear one of the warrior path condemn such traits in another. Are these not aspects of one's own soul-self, which all who walk the path you have chosen must find and embrace within themselves? We use them as tools, replied Doradios. Emotions to be mastered and used to give us greater strength of purpose. The isher. Lilithan does not use them in such a way. She allows them to use her as their tool instead. She has allowed her hatred of the humans and her grief at the destruction of her craft world to blind her to all else around her. Is Noted, Caradrio? The fourth of the five words for outcast. Only one meaning above the level of true outcast. The murderous Eldar pirate raiders who roamed space, killing at will. And who were, without, both honour and craft world. Had Doradios used that term in Lilithan's presence, the lifeblood of one or the other of them would surely have been spilt. There is truth in much of what you say, conceded Caradriel. And still you insist on using her in this matter, despite all I and others have said? The Aspect Lord shifted stance, assuming the correct posture to signify his official opposition to the Farseer's command. So... "'Noted,' nodded Caradryl, making the gesture of conciliation. "'Nevertheless, Lilithon will accompany me on my mission, as will you, Doradios. "'And Eosus commands it,' he added, gesturing around at the crystal forest of the craftworld's collective spirit minds. "'And I shall need your strength and counsel close by my side.' The Aspect Lord's voice and expression was sharp with displeasured surprise. "'Accompany you. It was our understanding that we were to lead this expedition. There is much danger in what lies ahead, Lord Caradriel. We do not need the witch gift of farsight to know that much. And Anne eolsis has much need yet of your wisdom and seer vision. You should not take such a risk.' "'I can, and I must,' answered the farseer. There are matters of prescience which are yet far from assured. He broke off for a moment, looking at Deradrios and whispering to him in mind speech. Chiron and Freya, how far can they be depended on? The answer came back almost instantaneously. I trust them with my life, Lord Farseer, and with yours. Caradriel nodded in acknowledgement. Then I must tell you that in this matter there are shadows across the path of the future. Even to one with the gift of far sight, the outcome of events we are about to set in motion, and those which have already been set in motion, is unknown. Too many fate lines intersect together, at some point in the Kilith in the near future to come, obscuring the way ahead. You speak... "'Of the Farush core, a shadow point,' said Deradios, "'noting the Farseer's surprised reaction to his use of the term. "'A convergence of many possible futures, "'which not even the far sight of our race's greatest seers can discern. "'Yes, the ways of the Witch Path are not unknown "'to even an aspect initiate such as this one,' Deradios added, "'with a hint of a knowing smile. "'If that is the case, Lord Caradriel,' "'then my concerns about your involvement in this expedition are multiplied many times over. "'If you cannot see the future ahead, then the danger to you becomes more than can be safely imagined.' "'An shares your concerns, friend Daradios,' said the aged Farseer, "'indicating the crystalline forest around them with a sweep of his withered hand. "'But if we do face a shadow point, then my presence becomes even more vital.' It is only by being there, standing at the centre of the moment of convergence, that I will be able to see and choose the one true path ahead amongst the many other false futures. The aspect, Lord, paused in thought for a moment, uh, considering the Farseer's words and then, with an air of reluctant obligation, bowed respectfully to Caradriel. Wisdom commands, Lord Farseer. "'I go now to make the necessary arrangements for the expedition "'ahead of the arrival of the Esher outcast Lilithan and her vessel.' "'He bowed again, and departed, accompanied by his two lieutenants. "'Caradriel watched them go, "'wondering if they had detected any hint of the half-truths he had told them. "'Yes, his far sight had detected the mystic shadow point ahead, "'but his gift of prescient vision was far in advance "'of that possessed by many of his brother farseers.' and it had shown him tantalising hints of the former things to come. These were not mere Farishim visions, fragment pieces of false futures, or possible futures still waiting to be born into real time, for his far sight was powerful enough to tell the difference between such phantom visions. No, they were images from the Tahuni, the true future yet to be and they showed mind-pictures of things that would and must come to pass if the course of the true future were to be safely found amidst the entrapping maze of the shadow point ahead. He closed his eyes and focused his far sight again, seeing the same images which he had already committed to memory a thousand times before. A laughing... Kai giant, his brutal scarred face splashed with blood, his bare, thickly muscled arms covered in the crude tribal tattoo markings typical of his barbaric race. He had weapons in his hand, crude and noisy Monkai weapons, and he laughed as they spat forth metal death into the bodies of his unseen enemies. Was this terrifying vision that of friend or foe? Caradriel wondered knowing that only the events which awaited him within the darkness of the Shadow Point would reveal the truth. He concentrated further, and the torrent of mind images continued. The Asher outcast Lilithon upon the command deck of her vessel. The features of her face were twisted in violent anger. She was shouting orders, and the void around her ship was filled with a flurry of destructive energy. Gunfire! A space battle! There was another vessel there, too, alongside Lilithan's ship, The other vessel's hull lines were vulgar and ugly in comparison to the sleek, almost organic shape of the Eldar craft. A human warship, a Monkai craft, the fury of its firepower unleashed in the same direction as that of the Eldar ship beside it. Now do you see, Doradios, Caradriel asked himself. Now do you see why the Ashir outcast must go with us? She is there already at the Shadow Point, waiting for us in a future which... For better or worse, I know will come to pass. Already the shape of the hidden future commands that she be there with us. He looked further. More visions swam up into focus. The webway, its shifting psycho-structure was as familiar to Caradriel as the walls of his own living chambers, although it had been over a century since he had left the craft world to walk the webway's strange and near-limitless paths. There was something there in the webway, something vast and terrible, travelling even now towards the shadow point and carrying with it portents of futures, the shapes of which even the veteran Farseer hesitated to look at. He saw the Presence's name written in the burning trail it left in the wake of its journey through the webway and his mind recoiled in fear at the promise of the bloody-handed slaughter the Burning Lord carried with it. He saw the shadow point itself, a giant glittering black gem blocking the route ahead to the future. It was slowly spinning, presenting first one facet to his gaze and then a different one. Even as he watched, images flickered and cascaded across its clouded surface, tantalizing hints of futures yet to be, some of them perhaps also never to be. Himself lying dead on the barren surface of some bleak and sterile world. A human. "'Stern and hawk-faced, dressed in the strange uniform of one of the corpse-god's bewildering number of warrior tribes. "'He is aboard a starship, shouting orders in vain as his vessel turns to fire around him. "'A great battle among the stars, greater than any Caradryl had ever seen before, "'greater perhaps than any he had heard tell of except in the dimmest and oldest of legends.' Monkai and Eldar ships together, fighting not against one another, but combining against a mutual enemy. A star exploding, its ancient nuclear heart as old as the galaxy itself, and now ripped asunder by a force more destructive and deadly than a thousand of the Monkai's proudest battle fleets. The other stars witnessed the death of one of their own, and the galaxy mourned its passing and feared the awakening of weapons and secrets of which it had long hoped had been lost forever the faces of Doradios, Lilithan and other Eldar known to him. They were imprisoned somewhere terrible and no place at once both strangely familiar and grotesquely alien. They were screaming, all of them, their broken bodies pinioned down upon machines constructed of gleaming bone and metal while twisted, barb fleshed things stood over them and opened them up with fingers transformed into thin, cruel scalpel edges. All this he was able to see but nothing else. The shadow point spun faster, throwing a shroud of darkness around itself, the darkness reaching out towards the bright goal of the Farseer's mind. With a wrench he tore himself free of its grasp, returning his mind and soul to the here and now. He stood still for a moment, taking comfort in the psychic refuge of the dome, dwelling on what he had just seen. Only some of these visions would come to pass, but which ones? And there was something else, too. Something still hidden, within the obscuring deadness of the shadow point. Something abominable, and yet also perversely familiar. A thought, or something less than a thought, a vague and nameless dread, which he dare not even give proper form to, worked itself loose from the place where he kept his deepest and most secret fears. Shame Nudia Asurinash, Erineth, Asurianat, he intoned to himself may the blessings of Ashuriam protect the children of Ashuriam from abomination. His invocation of the most potent and dire of all the prayers to the greatest and oldest of the Eldar gods sent a rustling shiver of psychic alarm through the spirit minds of the dome. Caradriel laid a hand on the crystalline bark of one of the nearby trees, recognising, as his flesh touched it, the psychic resonance of the bone-singer Catherhal, who had once been a rival of Caradriel's for the love of his eventual first soulmate, Agilithia, and who had saved his life a century later, fending off a human chainsaw blow, which would have otherwise decapitated the injured Caradriel. "'Rest easy, brother,' he whispered. "'Forgive me. I did not mean to disturb your dreams with my thoughtless words.' A motionless current stirred through the dreaming minds of the spirits of the dome. Gradriel felt it, and felt the craft world's concern, concern for him and for the future of them all. He mind-spoke thoughts of reassuring calm, and felt the mood of the Infinity Circuit ease in return. He made his way to the exit, turned and bowed respectfully, one last time, to the forest of glittering, diamantine trees. Farewell, old friends. Any Olsis commands, but I look forward to resting here a while with you again, when I return. As he left, he heard the disquiet in the spirit mind's voiceless murmurings, and the faint, sad whispers of final farewell from those who in life had been closest to him. He sighed to himself. Perhaps a century or two ago, he could still have easily guarded his thoughts from the spirits within the craft world's infinity circuit, but his gift seemed now to have deserted him. They had seen what he had seen, and they saw and understood the lie in the words he had just spoken. Chapter 4 Half the galaxy away, another craft world drifted serenely in the dark, uncharted places between the stars. Its name was unknown to the librarian scribes of the Inquisition's Order Xenos, whose task it was to compile secret lists of such things. Its history was untouched by contact with the Imperium, for it lay far beyond the Imperium's borders and its inhabitants neither knew nor cared about the squabbling affairs of such a vulgar upstart race. It lay almost at the very limits of the webway, and there were few of those ancient routes which still connected to it. And so, by choice or circumstance, none within the craft world could remember, so long ago was it, they existed in almost complete isolation. Detached and unruffled, there they existed at the hour of the sunset passing of their race, in a state more akin to that of the long and blissful days enjoyed by their ancestors in the time before the great self-inflicted cataclysm, aloof, idyllic, untroubled. So it was that the young aspect initiate drew disapproving glances and reproachful mind-thought queries from his elders as he hurried along the tranquil, pearl-floored passages of the craft world's outermost western spiral. The turbulent emotions which filled his, as yet untutored mind, communicated itself into the minds of those around him, and after a moment's thought, many of them would have identified it as something similar to panic, or the closest equivalent to that an Eldar mind could produce. This note of discordant and unfamiliar emotion transmitted itself through the craft world, jumping from one Eldar mind to another, and so by the time the young initiate reached his destination, the one he had been searching for, had anticipated his arrival. She stood waiting for him in a gallery lined with bone sculptures. The delicate sigh material of the figurine shapes was sensitive to the mood of nearby minds, and they writhed and contorted into unfamiliar and anxiety-ridden shapes as the initiate approached. A display of crystal bone chimes shook in sympathetic distress at the sculpture's plight, but were hushed into calmed silence by a mind-command from the gallery's sole occupant. In his panic, the initiate forgot the normal courtesies due to his craft world's most high-born. "'My lady, there has been an incident at the shrine of Kela Mencha Khan!' The shrine has been opened. The shrine of the bloody-handed god? It took the Eldar noblewoman a moment to remember where the shrine was located within the vast labyrinth of the craft world. She had never visited the place herself. Few of the tens of thousands aboard the craft world ever had. They maintained a full force of guardians raised from amongst the population, and every Eldar here was fully prepared to sacrifice their lives in defence of their craft world. But the ways of war were not their ways and there were few amongst her people who chose to dedicate themselves to the worship of the Eldar's dark and enigmatic god of war. How can this be? Who would dare intrude on that place without risking the anger of the god? When the initiate answered, it was in a voice barely more than a terror-struck whisper. My lady, you do not understand. There has been no intrusion. The shrine has been opened from the inside. And the chamber beyond is empty. The avatar is gone. The gallery chamber was filled with the sound of crystal bone sculptures, all of them chiming urgently and without harmony. They would chime for many days, untamed by the sternest of thought commands, sending out an unheard warning to the cosmos. Let the enemies of the children of Ashurian beware. The bloody-handed god is on his way. Chapter five Spook, Hesh, Obscura, Morpho CowMath Spur. Whatever you're looking for, we've got it. Big battle coming. If we're all gonna die, might as well get high. Maxim Barossa had to admit that his new front man was good. Good at handling the customers, good at handling the merchandise, good at spotting troublemakers, and not too greedy either. He'd only once caught the little creep stealing more of the takings that he should have. And a few minutes with Galba and Corber, and a couple of broken fingers, nothing too severe. Maxim didn't want to damage a potentially very valuable new employee had been enough to sort out that little misunderstanding. Yeah, Maxim thought, as he sat at the back of the abandoned lower deck gallery that he and his crew had claimed for their own, the guy was good. In fact, life was good generally. He sat back on a crate throne, from where he could keep a careful eye on the proceedings. His tunic, emblazoned with the gold-fringed red rank sash of a senior chief petty officer, lay nearby, as did his chainsword belt and scabbard and twin bolt-pistol holster. All of them within easy reach, should he have an urgent need for them. A ship-whore, her eyes filled with the tell-tale glaze of root intoxication, sat on his lap. Giggling and squirming playfully in response to the idle movements of one of his big paw-like hands beneath her sequined blouse. Girls like this one weren't allowed aboard Navy ships, Maxim knew. But of course, neither were many other things that people needed and wanted. Like all those little illicit luxuries which helped make life aboard one of his Divine Majesty's warships slightly less hellish. And so there were always openings for a smart operator to do well for himself. Yeah. Life was good, Maxim thought. When he first came aboard the Macarius, he had been just another prison world conscript, kept in chains and with a life expectancy that could probably have been measured in months. Now, six years later, he was one of the most senior non-commissioned officers amongst a crew of almost 13,000. A familiar face on the command deck, a figure of fear and respect throughout the vessel. And here, below decks, the biggest fixer and criminal operator aboard the ship. He had a crew of almost 50 answering directly to him. All of them hand-picked by him. Hard, brutal sons of bitches, every one of them. And if need be, he could probably call up a full force of three or four times that number. His own private army, loyal only to him. Not that he usually had need of such a show of strength, of course. There was plenty on the bridge who knew what he got up to here below decks. But as long as you played it cool, didn't get too greedy, and didn't leave too many bodies lying around the place as a result of one too many disagreements with your business rivals, then they were generally happy to turn a blind eye to what was going on. Yeah, old Captain Semper wasn't a bad sort, Maxim thought. A bit of a cold fish, maybe. Your typical Cipramundian officer knob, really. But he knew what the score was. He knew that to keep order aboard ship, even the harsh, unforgiving type of Imperial Navy order. You had to leave a few outlets for the ordinary crew to blow off some steam. Steam control. That's what Maxim liked to think he provided. He remembered the steam tunnels below the hives of Stranivar, filled with the excess bleed from the torrents of thermal energy that was pumped up from the bubbling, magma-heated, sunless seas deep below the planet's surface. Energy, which provided much-needed heat and power to the giant, ancient hive structure. Good places to hide from the Arbites, bastards, those tunnels. And good places to take shelter during the triannual big chill season, when the Hive world's eccentric orbit took it away from its sun and out towards the heatless depths of the planetary system. That was when the deadly cold of the planet's atmosphere cut through the Hive's ancient battle-scarred adamantium walls, in a way which no lance beam ever could, penetrating down into the deepest levels of the Hive. You had to fight for the safest places in the steam tunnels, fight over displaced gangsters and the scavenger things which made their permanent homes in the tunnels. If you were unlucky, you and your entire gang might be suddenly scolded to death in an explosive rushing of superheated steam, which often blasted at random through some of the tunnels, but it was still better than freezing your bolters off in the dismal under-hive regions above. There were other things down there in the steam tunnels, servitor mechanoids which went about their endless tasks, completely oblivious to the gangsters around them, even to the extent of carrying out their work in the middle of pitched inter-gang gunfights. The gangers knew well enough to leave these things alone, for they maintained the ancient steam pressure systems throughout the tunnel network, and any attempt to interfere or damage these systems or their custodians could lead to catastrophe. Steam. Control. That's how Maxim saw his role aboard the Macarius, just like those servitors, operating the systems that kept the steam pressure within safe limits. And if he made a little on the site for himself, well, that was only fair, wasn't it? Considering the risks and effort involved in what he did. Everyone understood that. Everyone except that silver skull bastard, Kyogen. The Macarius' senior fleet commissar was gunning for him, Maxim knew. He had his people all throughout the ship, on every deck and in every team. Spies and informers, reporting everything they heard back to the big scar-faced commissar. Maxim had already found three of them within the ranks of his own organisation and had taken appropriate action. Even when not in battle, there were at least a dozen deaths a week on the Macarius, an unremarkable statistic which passed as the normal hazards of duty aboard a navy vessel. Crewmen crushed by heavy machinery in the torpedo room or flight bays. Crewmen vaporised by energy surges while working amongst the innards of the ship's power systems. Or even, for those wretches unfortunate enough to be consigned to the lowest decks where the ship's atmosphere processing systems were at their least dependable, suffocated, poisoned, frozen, or killed by sudden air pressure changes. Lots of ways to die, smiled Maxim, and lots of ways to conveniently and blamelessly dispose of Kaijin's little spies. Like this one, he thought, running another scarred hand over the soft flesh beneath the girl's top. Yes, it had been remarkably convenient as she had turned up at just the right time, arriving, so she claimed, a smuggled cargo aboard a lighter craft during their last recruiting stopover at Luxor Free. She was a looker, he had to admit, just his type, Also convenient, he noted, and athletic too. But she liked to ask questions, and she liked to be with him whenever he wasn't on duty on the command deck. She especially liked to be with him at times like this, when he had business to conduct. A honey trap, he thought to himself. Why, Commissar Kyogen, you sly old goat. And I thought you were too much of an emperor-loving Puritan to stoop to such tricks. Still, he knew he would have to do something about this one. He sighed to himself, it really was a pity, since he actually quite liked having her around. No doubt the coming battle would provide a few convenient opportunities to settle the problem. As if on cue, a series of deep, sonorous chimes rang out, broadcast through the ship by the interdeck Vox Callers. Free chimes, battle imminent. Speaking for himself, Maxim liked battles, not just personally, but professionally too. Good for business, a great big battle. Half the crew aboard any warship liked to get hopped up on Narcstims just before a battle. Narcstims took the edge off the fear of knowing that at almost any second, you and the other thousands of poor bastards around you stood every chance of being obliterated from existence without a moment's warning. Others wanted something that would help them chewing into the madness of battle, figuring their best chances of survival lay in adding to the insanity rather than trying to isolate themselves from it. Maxim didn't care. Whatever his customers' preferences, he had the product to match their needs. Calmer and obscurer for the ones who needed to pretend it was all happening to someone else. Heavy-duty hallucinogenics like Morph, Ziz and Halo for the ones who needed to pretend it was happening in a completely different universe to the personal universe for one they were inhabiting. Slaughter, Spur and Havoc, for the ones mostly armsmen and members of boarding assault parties who wanted a little something extra in their bloodstreams and nervous systems to give them that added boost for when they met the enemy face to face. The warning caused a stir amongst the line of customers and they pushed forward, eager to get what they had come for and return to their stations before the next warning sounded. Not being at your battle stations, by the time the two-chime warning sounded was a capital offence, one ruthlessly enforced by Commissar Kyogen with his usual efficient, favourless zeal. Back, get back, warned Galba, waving a snub-nosed auto-pistol at the line. "'Plenty for everybody and plenty of time to get it!' Colber, his twin, cousin, lover, ganger-brother, Maxim was never sure of the exact nature of the relationship between the two of them, and in much care, stood nearby, backing up Gauber's actions with a meaningful sweep of the long barrel of his shot-cannon. The crowd backed off respectfully, knowing from experience of too many close-combat boarding actions, exactly the kind of slaughter the weapon could achieve in a confined target-filled space like the one they were in now next called the front man beckoning forward the man at the head of the line what are you looking for friend slaughter as much as you got the red vile mix only none of that karma cut stuff you tried to sell me last time the front man looked at the customer coolly appraising him man knows he's slaughter red dragon mix it is I know how much you boys in the engineering like to ride the dragon. Maxim looked over the exchange, catching his interest. The customer was squat and heavy-set, his dark-colored skin oddly taut and withered in the manner typical of those who worked in the ship's engineering sections, where the heat and radiation from the ship's fiery plasma reactor hearts could penetrate the thickest plaz armored work suits to braise and burn flesh. The engineerum sections weren't part of Maxim's turf. They belonged to a senior engineering rating called Sejara, a limping, squint-eyed little runt who was Maxim's main rival in the steam control business. Maxim had given Sejara that limp. Next time, the big hive-worlder promised himself his aim would be better. Colbert shot a querying glance at his boss. Maxim nodded the OK. Sejara controlled the narc stim supply business in the engineerum, But if this guy wanted to buy from Maxim, or, as the quantities he was buying here seemed to suggest, set himself up freelance in the same business, then that was his lookout. Independent operators trying to set up their own in Sajara's turf had a nasty habit of falling into plasma furnaces. The front man caught the exchange between the crew boss and his pet killer. OK, friend, he said to the customer. So, what have you got to offer us in exchange? No navy scrip, and none of that stuff they call currency in half the mud bowls in this arse end of a subsector. Like for like, that's what we like to see. The engineer moved forward, laying a cloth wrapped bundle on the makeshift table crate before the front man. Maxim's man unwrapped it, revealing an oddly wrought bolt pistol. He held it up, showing it to Maxim. With its brass markings and ornamentation, a gargoyle-mouthed muzzle end and strange hand grip that didn't seem quite made to fit a normal human hand, it was clearly a chaos weapon. Maxim knew there was a high demand for these things, and that he could probably trade it for a small fortune in the next port world they visited. There were always plenty of mincing, rear echelon munitorum adepts or reservist imperial guard officers keen to acquire such trophies, no doubt so they could display them to swooning, weak-kneed, aristocratic ladies and tell them heroic tales of how they took it from the dead hand of some chaos warlord they had just slain in single combat. Not bad, judged Maxim grudgingly, careful not to give away too much of his interest in the offer. Got any shells for it? They're worth more if you have a full mag of shells. Funny you should say that, grinned the customer, reaching casually into his heavy Kevlar-quilted engineer's jacket. As he did so, there was the beginning of a minor commotion at the back of the queue. Colber, distracted by the customer, missed it. Galber caught it, but a split second too late. Maxim, who had survived dozens of ambushes in the tunnels and caverns of his brutal hive-world home, and who had planned dozens more, saw it coming a split second before it happened. He roared in anger, hurling the girl off his lap directly into the line of fire. Shots rang out, and a volley of bullets and las-blasts intended for him struck her instead, tearing her apart. The front man still sat there, his numbed mind racing to catch up with what was happening. It was a race he would never win. He keeled over, dead before he hit the ground. As the engineer, customer, leveled the auto-pistol secreted inside his jacket and fired two closely grouped bursts of shots into his face and chest. Maxim was moving now, reaching for his own holstered weapons while keeping one eye on the progress of the mayhem around him. There was more gunfire from the back of the disintegrating queue, more quilt-jacketed engineers emerging out of hiding to join the fray. "'Sajara's crew, Maxim knew. "'Looks like the sneaky little runt "'was trying to expand his business ventures "'beyond the limits of the engineerum sections, "'using the cover of the imminent battle "'as an opportunity to make his move. "'He saw Kolber spin and fall, "'shots punching into the carapace-armoured vest "'he wore on such occasions. "'He saw Galber. Shout in fury, return fire on his twin cousin-lover Ganga Brothers attackers, stray shots from his stuttering auto-pistol slamming into the bodies of the panicked customers. Maxim saw one of the shots lift off the top of the skull of a junior tech priest, and uttered a typically harsh Stranovar curse to himself. The tech priest was a valued and regular customer, and a useful source of all kinds of valuable little tech devices which he used to pay for his secret obscure habit. That was one source of supply which would be closed to Maxim now. The full guy for the ambush was coming at him now, kicking aside the body of the front man and charging straight at Maxim, keeping up a continuous stream of fire from his auto pistol. Maxim rolled, reaching out for and missing the holster belt hanging nearby as auto pistol shells chewed apart the crates around him. Instead, his scrabbling fingers found the hilt of his chainsword. He drew the weapon in one smooth motion, searching for and activating the power switch. The weapon roared into hungry life. The assassin was almost on top of him now, and Maxim felt an auto-pistol shot take away some of the meat from the top of his left shoulder. From the ground, Maxim swung the chainsword in a low, horizontal arc. A second later, the assassin fell to the ground, landing beside him the stupefied expression on his face, showing that he was still trying to wonder what had happened to his legs from the knees down. Maxim didn't give him a chance to work out the answer and shot him in the forehead with his auto-pistol. He stood up, emptying the remainder of the clip into the chest and stomach of the next stupid bastard to fancy their chances against Maxim Barossa. Then did a quick head count as he discarded the spent weapon and successfully retrieved his bolt pistol. Bodies littered the floor, most of them customers caught in the crossfire. Maxim recognised the forms of three of his own men amongst them, and even as he watched he saw that useless balamite yokel Gorgaka hit the far wall of the chamber, his body dancing idiotically under the impact of bullets pummeling into him. No big loss to his organisation, Maxim judged. The lazy Agriwalder had been a dead weight for a while and there would be any number of potential replacements for him coming aboard the next time the resupply shuttles arrived with their press-ganged cargo at their next port of call. Still, his death meant one gun less against Sejara's crew, so Maxim figured that he needed to do something to even up the odds. He tracked targets, his aim hesitating as the running forms of non-combatants passed through his field of fire. Not that he cared much about causing a few friendly fire casualties amongst non-combatants, but it was bad business to gun down your customers without good cause. Finally, his aim settled on a clear target. A group of Sijara's gunmen, clustered together at metres from the nearest cover. Amateurs, he thought. They wouldn't have lasted five minutes on Stranovar. never mind the Hive World's notorious Lubyanka prison moon. Really, he was doing the Emperor a favour, he told himself, as he pulled the triggers on his bolt pistols. Half-wit fools like them didn't deserve a place in His Divine Majesty's glorious Imperial Navy. The gunman blew apart in a scattering of shattered limbs and viscera under the impact of the bolter shells. Maxim checked his remaining shell count and scanned for further targets. Corbo was back on his feet now, blood flowing through at least one of the bullet holes, punched through his chest plate, as he scattered shot cannon rounds into the ranks of Shijara's men, showing far less discretion in his choice of targets than Maxim had. Galba was with him, partially supporting him as his twin cousin-lover Ganga brother's legs threatened to give out from under him, and their combined fire was enough to drive the engineer and Gangers back into cover. Maxim was moving forward now, firing his twin bolt pistols, keeping up a steady litany of shots, adding his firepower to that of Kolba and Galba, boxing in their targets with streams of fire from two simultaneous directions at once, keeping them confused and off-balance, Maxim grinned. Sejara's crew had lost the initiative now. With every moment that passed, he could feel the direction of the battle swinging in his favour. A shape rose up from behind an equipment stack. Maxim swivelled towards it, raising one bolt pistol in readiness, but before he could fire, the figure tumbled to the ground, a knife hilt buried in its throat. Maxim looked round and saw a man, no... "'More of a boy, really, barely old enough to know the feel of a shaving blade on his face crouching nearby.' "'Maxim nodded his unspoken thanks at the lad. "'A powder monkey from one of the starboard-side gun bays,' he hazily recalled, "'who liked his calmer cut with a little cloudy obscure resin "'and made a mental note of the boy's quickness and ability for future consideration. "'Maxim had no doubt that he would have dealt with the threat in time "'if the boy's knife hadn't got there first. But that kind of resourcefulness and skill with a knife could surely be put to use somewhere within his little business operation. Besides, he thought, stepping over the dying, groaning body of another of his men, there seemed to be a few unexpected openings in the organisation at the moment. Sajara's boys had had enough. The gunfight should have been over by now, and the lookout pickets Maxim had posted to guard the approaches to the gallery would be pulling back now, threatening to cut off their escape while others would be summoning reinforcements from nearby. They tried to make a break for it, the less experienced of them going first. The first three were cut down in the crossfire from Colbert, Galba and the others, unintentionally creating a distraction which allowed the rest of them to run for the exit passage. Maxim had been waiting for them. Two went down hard, bolter shells exploding into their retreating backs. Maxim smiled as he drew a bead on the next one, a short figure with a familiar limp. He fired his pistol clicking on empty. He brought his other pistol up to bear, but it was too late, and his target had already disappeared around the corner. Maxim wasn't stupid enough to follow, and not when the chances were that Shajara had left a man there waiting to plug a few rounds into the first warm body to come around the corner. That would be what Maxim would have done under the same circumstances, and he rarely made a mistake of crediting an enemy as having any less intelligence than himself. So... That was twice he'd had Sejira in his sights, and the little runt was still alive. Maxim swore. His enemy wouldn't get that lucky a third time, that much he was sure of. From the passageway beyond came the sound of the vox callers. Two chimes, all crew to battle stations. Galber shot a nervous glance at his gang leader. "'Battle time, boss!' "'What we going to do about all this?' he asked, gesturing at the carnage around them. "'Relax!' If I know old Semper, then we'll be taking a mac right into the thick of things. He grinned. So, if we're all still alive at the end of this, no-one's going to notice a dozen or so extra bodies and amongst all the others, the clean-up crews sling through the airlocks. He did a quick head count, coming up with himself, Galba, Colba and four others, plus the knife kid, who still hadn't run off along with the other non-combatants. Okay, round up about ten others. I want Hawk and Vannon especially, if you can find them. Any officers try to give you a hard time, tell them they're seconded to inspection tour duties with Chief Petty Officer Barrosa, by order of Lieutenant Ulante. That'll shut them up quick, and tell everyone to bring weapons. Inspection tour? There was confused doubt in Galba's voice. As Chief Petty Officer, I've got rights of access to just about every area of the ship. I take my responsibilities seriously, rating second-class Galba. I need to know that everyone's carrying out their Emperor-ordained duties faithfully and efficiently, especially when we're in battle. Galba smiled. So did Kolba, despite the pain of his wound. Their smiles were like the hungry snarls of a predator. Eager understanding shone in their eyes. Rights of access, boss. You mean like the engineerum? That's exactly what I mean, grinned Maxim. So come on, let's go find our pal Sejira and spring a little surprise inspection duty on him. They moved out, leaving their dead behind him, Colbert first making sure that the scattered merchandise was safely gathered up and returned to a secure hiding place. Maxim turned round just before they left the gallery, seeing the knife kid still standing there, looking expectantly at him. Maxim hesitated a moment and then nodded. The kid happily ran to join them, scooping a gun out of the hand of a dead man. They moved swiftly and purposefully along the gangway beyond. As the ship trembled under the impact of the first incoming enemy fire glancing off its void shields, seconds later, the final warning chime sounded over the Vox callers. One chime. Battle commencing. Maxim grinned again. He loved a good bowel. So useful for covering up so many different things with no one the wiser afterwards about what they've really been up to. I bloody hate Eldar names. They're so annoying, especially with all the... I don't know. I hope you enjoyed that. This was part two. Part three is coming very soon, within a day or two of the release of this. I hope you enjoyed this. Please do let me know in the comments what you think. Uh, please do like the video. Subscribe if you're not subscribed and you happen to see this somewhere. If you're on the podcast's uh, feed, please do like it in whatever way the podcast you're listening to. The podcast uh, app, <laughs> whatever it's called, it Let's your favorite things. I appreciate that. That really helps with the algorithm and all these things on YouTube especially. Please do do those things. It really, really helps me out, lads. If you would like to support the channel, uh, you can become a YouTube member. You can become a member on Patreon or uh, on Subscribestar. I think there's some other ways. I'm not too sure about that. I'm working something out. But yeah, if you'd like to support the channel, I really, really appreciate that. It really, really helps. But otherwise, yeah, please do just uh, like and comment and all that stuff. It really, 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 really helps. I'll be back again soon with more Maxim Barossa. This book's way harsher than remembered. (laughs) Ha ha! I was reading it when I was a kid, though. I read it when I was like 14, so or something like that. So, yeah, some of the stuff maybe went over my head. But anyway, hope you enjoy more soon. Bye-bye.